And it is Jesus who makes today a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. We are so glad you decided to join us today. Today is Palm Sunday. And this Palm Sunday, we can know that our God is always right on time. He was right on time for the first Palm Sunday. And he will be right on time for everything which he has in store for you. Please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And now with his message for today is our pastor, Robert Elliott. This Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter week, the Sunday we remember the Lord Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem riding on a young uh, donkey. Are you aware that the very first Palm Sunday came right on time according to God's prophecy? Are you aware this morning the very first Palm Sunday is proof positive that our God is always right on time? Please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel. It's about 60% of the way through the Old Testament. If your Bible has a table of contents, you can turn there to help you find the Old Testament book of Daniel. Our text for this sermon is Daniel 9, 24 through 27. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. As you're turning to Daniel chapter 9, I want to give you historical context. At the time of Daniel, the nation of Judah was in Babylonian captivity as a judgment from God. And God back then told his man Daniel, who had risen to the highest echelons of civil service in Babylon, God told his civil servant follower, Daniel, all about the timing of the first Palm Sunday. Isn't that amazing? Don't we serve a God who's sovereign and in control and worthy, therefore, of our trust and praise? About 550 years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, God revealed to Daniel the very time when Jesus would be presented as Israel's king on the very first Palm Sunday. Are you in Daniel 9? Look at verses 24 to 27 with me. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. We're going to go over the prophetic verses here, phrase by phrase, to seek to understand what God was predicting to Daniel. 
But before we dive in, please remember that these verses I have just read were written over 500 years to the Jews before Christ was even born. And in verse 24, a verse that is chalk-packed of prophecy, in verse 24, God told Daniel that God intended to chasten his people, the Jews, for at least 70 more seven-year periods after the conclusion of the Babylonian captivity. See it again in verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, etc. 70 weeks is 70 times 7, or 490 years. God was saying back then that he would pour out his judgment on Israel in general and on Jerusalem in particular for another 490 years after the Jews were released from Babylonian captivity. Stick with me. It'll be worth it. All this is to show us that any impatience with God which we might entertain is inappropriate because God is always right on time. He was in time sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, and God is going to be right on time in your life, whatever you face. It's never late. Keep praying. Keep trusting. Keep waiting like the police officer in the radar trap looking for speeders. That police officer in the, in the cruiser has the radar gun poised and ready. He's waiting to catch someone who's exceeding the speed limit. Be that way with God because he's always right on time. Be expectant. Be patient. Be prayerful. So what are we saying? We're saying that God told Daniel 550 years before Christ that Messiah would be presented and present in Israel as a nation within 490 years from the time that Judah was released from Babylon. Verse 24 is saying a lot more than that, though. Verse 24 is stating six things future, all of which will happen after the 490 years. Six things. And all six of these prophetic events can only take place after the second coming return of Christ, after Jesus, the Lord Jesus, sets up his literal kingdom on earth for a thousand years. We call it the millennium. The answer to Jesus' model prayer when he prayed to the Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm looking forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem's throne. When God's will will be done on earth as God's will is currently being done in heaven. How is God's will currently being done in heaven? Completely, thoroughly, immediately, without opponent. I'm looking forward to that. And when you look at verse 24, you see six things being predicted for that future kingdom time of King Jesus. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So let's go through these six uh, predictions about the kingdom that's to come. Number one, Israel's transgression will be finished. That is, Israel's rebellion against God's rule will be over. Israel will 
only accept God's rule over her when Israel believes on Christ in a personal way that Jesus Christ, Yeshua, is Messiah. This will be in the millennium. Second thing predicted for the millennium, Israel's sin will be ended. That is, Israel's daily sins will stop once Christ is ruling earth for a thousand wonderful years yet future. Third prediction, Israel's iniquity will be atoned for. Jesus Christ atoned for Israel's and all of the world's sins, of course, on the cross when he died and shed his innocent blood. But that atonement will not actually be applied to Israel's believers until the nation of Israel finds herself in the future kingdom of Christ on earth. Fourth prediction, still in verse 24, everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Israel in particular and the world in general has never known Everlasting righteousness. (laughs) Read the newspaper. Watch the news. Read history. There has never been a time as yet when God's perfect righteousness had a starting point and then had an infinity long arrow that never ends. That's what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes to Mount Olivet sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years, suppresses evil with an iron scepter. And the righteousness that Jesus Christ establishes in his future kingdom will go on into forever the new heaven and the new earth. This verse 24 is full of millennial prophecies. Number five, vision and prophecy will be sealed up. The revelation that came through vision or prophecy will no longer be uh, a concern once Israel is uh, in the kingdom and experiencing all that the kingdom enjoys. No need for vision or prophecy in that kingdom. And sixth prediction in verse 24 is that the most holy place in the kingdom will be anointed. The most holy place in the future kingdom is the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. By the way, you do know that rabbis in the rabbis' tunnels and other places have been studying the Old Testament scriptures to know the dimensions, the specifications for the future rebuilt temple of the Jews in Jerusalem. Furthermore, they've gathered all the building materials that the Old Testament specifies, the types of wood necessary. It's all ready. They're ready to rebuild the temple in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And they will. Thank you, Pastor Rob, for your message today. It's time now for You Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning. This is Pastor Nicholas, another edition of You Talk. And we want to start our, our series talking about the good story. And when we consider we are now on Palm Sunday, and we consider, as most of us will hear and talk about the as Jesus comes into town and, and branches are thrown and people shout Hosanna, we remember how the crowd was shouting Hosanna and, and understand he is the one who's come to save. And we recognize as we look at this week, this is the greatest week of the Christian calendar. And so many times as we consider uh, Easter, you know, we think of Christmas and Christmas is, we put so much emphasis on Christmas with the birth of Jesus and, and it's very important as we know that, you know, Jesus was born and, and we understand that, but we need to remember why Jesus came. And he came to die for our sin. He came to die so that we could have a relationship with him. And and as we consider and we look at this over the next couple of weeks, I want you to imagine for a second a movie. 
you know, we and living in a society today where we have a lot of superhero movies and they always have these super great endings and they have all these things. And I want you to think of your greatest superhero. And I want you to think of that movie that you may watch and think to yourself, boy, I wish that there was a true story. I wish that was real. I wish that would happen in real life. And as we know, we see um, in all these different superheroes, like I said, they have these great endings and they're just so great. But as we consider and we look forward, we look forward to Easter, we understand this is the greatest story ever told. We recognize that this is a story that is better than any other story that we could even imagine. And as we know, Hollywood has tried to, you know, place a picture of it and, and all that. But when we consider the Easter story and we recognize what Jesus Christ went through for us, what more can we do than to, to say, wow, what a savior. And so many times as we consider Easter, we have to remember this as well, that we need to remember that as we consider Easter, this is what our faith is all about. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ never happened, then we are living a lie. The whole thing would be in vain. As we see in Corinthians, Paul talks about that over and over. But we want to focus this morning as we're going to start, like I said, talking about the good story. I'm going to start at Luke chapter 23. At starting at verse 44, it says, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three. I want to stop there. I want you to consider that for three hours in the daytime when it's supposed to be light, supposed to be the sun bright, that I mean, the sun is supposed to be in the middle of what is happening, is completely dark. And I'm sure that we can imagine and we can think of times when we've seen storms come and, you know, it, the, the sky gets dark, but this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about almost night. It is nightfall. It is that dark for three whole hours. Verse 45, because the sun's light failed, the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last breath. And when we consider this and we look at this story and we look at how the death of Jesus is it, such a, a powerful death, a death like no other. As we look through the, the word and we look at how um, in other gospels we see that Jesus died quicker than a lot of other criminals on the cross. And we see how prophecy is fulfilled because no bone can be broken in Jesus. But what they would do for other criminals is break their bones so they would die quicker. But Jesus was already gone. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the story of Easter, and I want you to think about if this is where it ended. If we had to stop here and say, Jesus died, what would happen? What would change for your faith? What would change about your life? What would change about everything you're about? The reality is everything should change. Everything should change because that is not where the story ends. It would just be like watching the first part of a movie. And seeing all the bad that happened and without the good, and we would be like wondering what's going on. Imagine for a second as you consider some of you who like to watch different shows and you watch the end of season one and you're waiting for season two to come out, but you find out that the network channel has canceled that because it didn't have the ratings that you should have had. That would be devastating. 
you would be hurt. You would be like, wow, why did that have to happen? Well, this is what we're looking at here. As we consider the death of Jesus, we consider what he went through. And this is what verse 47, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began to glorify God saying, this man was righteous. And the crowds that had gathered for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Again, as we consider this story and we consider the death of Christ, and as we look forward now, as we look at Good Friday, and this is the part of Good Friday that we are, are talking about as, as many people will go to church and we will remember the Lord's death. The question is, again, if it ended there, would the story be different? If it ends there, how would your faith be different? How would you change? Would you live differently? Because reality is, is that when we consider this, and we look at the whole Bible as a whole, and we look at the prophecies of the death of Christ, we know one thing, that at Jesus' death, and as we're going to look at next week, we're going to look at how we ourselves, why we needed Jesus to die for us, because how sinful we are. But one thing is for sure is this, is that we have a Savior. A Savior that, as we're going to look at next week, that didn't stay dead. But He's alive and well. And because He's alive and well, we can have hope. And we can have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is Pastor Nicholas Midnight Edition of Utah. It's time for today's Ministry Spotlight. Good morning. I'm in the radio studio this morning with my friend, Dr. Stephen Lewis. Good morning. Good morning. Dr. Lewis and I were at Dallas Seminary together some years back, and our brother's current ministry is to serve as the president of Rocky Mountain Bible College and Seminary in Denver, Colorado. And so I wanted to talk with you, uh, Brother Steve, about uh, the concept of indigenous Missionaries, And that's a fancy way of saying uh, missionaries doing the work of a missionary in their own country and in their own language, in their own understanding of their culture. Could you just speak to us what you feel about that whole uh, movement in missions? Well, I think it, primarily I think it's one of the most important learning lessons we have finally come to grips with in the history of missions. I really do. I think in the past, somehow we had the audacity or the gall to think that we were the only ones that could know something, the only ones that could proclaim it, and the only ones that could actually give it to someone else as if it had to come through us first. Mm -hmm. we're, we're sort of the epitome, if you will, of a bad example of Acts 15. Mm -hmm. You know, and what we really need to do is this indigenization of of the of the the body of Christ is is just an extraordinary blossoming event that's happening. In fact, there's a brand new book coming out on translation work from a very capable scholar, a friend that I know, on indigenization of biblical languages of, of putting translated into the vernacular of the day and the the rules that go with that without violating the text is something that we've needed to do. We've talked about it. All those of us that do translation work and other things have had it sort of there, but never 
quite as well presented as what this new book coming out is. What is that brother's last name? Bill Barrick, Dr. William Barrick, B-E-B-A-R-R-I-C-K, a great friend. And he's just uh, had a chance to pr- read it before uh, it's coming out. And it's it's hitting at the heart of putting it into the, the language of the vernacular of the people of which we're trying to reach in all these places. That's great. I asked you because maybe some of our listeners will... Uh, you know, watch online to see when that book is available. And uh, the surname is Barrick. Yeah, Barrick. On yeah. indigenization of missions. Yeah, and the idea of what we call vernacular translation. Excellent work that he's doing. Yeah, That, that is good. Now, he translated originally the... Uh, the language of Bangladesh for the Old Testament from the Hebrew. Mm, wow. He's very capable, and you'd, you'd love him anyway. He's a great man. So. That's great. Now, you made passing reference to Acts 15. Of course, that's the Jerusalem Council. Correct. Where uh, the Jewish converts to Christ <laughs> in the first century felt that they had to lean on the Old Testament law and were not too open to anyone else in the church having any say or influence. So that's what you were talking about. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, so for the person that uh, is, this is new to, the, the idea of indigenous missionaries, does that mean that uh, it's wrong for a local church to support more traditional missionaries that are not from a, a culture or a language? No, I think... The goal is indigenization. We don't always reach the goal the first day we begin it. There may be not there may not be anybody particularly capable of doing some things, and we may have to introduce it. You know, some of these places, as we've done with B, have never had the luxury of learning God's word and to be able to learn how to disciple. But the goal is that they not become more dependent on us, but they become less dependent upon upon us and more capable handlers of God's word themselves by the work of the Spirit and by the work that they'll be doing so that they can go on and carry it on. And even beyond that, we're now discovering that the best way to reach one group is to find the the group nearest to them, ethnically, nearest to them, socially, wherever it may be, and equip them, and we may have some already there, then send them on into the other groups there and have them be involved in it. And so it's just, it's it's an exciting time. It's kind of like, you know, I have a sense that God may be just going, where have you guys been all these years? Haven't you been listening? But we're, we're slow, but we're getting there. Right. What would, uh, it seems to me there's very practical advantages to having indigenous missionaries that are from the country. What would be some of the top advantages to having that approach? Well, you know, the longevity of the church is really dependent upon the availability of those who minister. And when you're there and living there, and that's your, that, those are your families, those are your, the, that's your heritage, sometimes they will listen to you more effectively, and sometimes they won't. But overall, the long-term health of the church is multiplied greatly. Because of these there. Like anything, when you go back uh, to the people you're most comfortable, you can really identify with them and so on. And all of us, it takes a while to to become part of the fiber and everything of a, of a, of a people. These people have that already, and they're going to be ministering more effectively. When I teach in other countries and I have to go through a translator, I can only teach half as much 
in the regular amount of time because I have to pause, let mm. it be translated, mm. and then go back. And then, then if there's, then if they're not, it's not coming through clearly. I have to restate it in a way, and then I have to retranslate it. Whereas if I'm talking to somebody that, that or somebody speaking in their own language, they can communicate far more effectively than we can. Absolutely. So it's a great. It, I think it's great to see it. I, I'm excited to see it happening and uh, do away with some of the. Again, not that there still needs to be the startups. There still needs to be people that go out and take the word of God to these people and to be equipped. And I'd rather take the education to them instead of drawing them out and possibly losing them from their country in the long run. Yes. Yes. Let me ask you this. If there's a pastor or two listening this morning or a otherwise church leader, elder, deacon, what have you, um, and they're saying, okay, this is a new concept, this is a good concept, how would my church, they ask, how would my church find a good indigenous missionary to support? Well, I think it may start with having good missionaries that you that, that have this as a goal in mind. Mm-hmm. If you find the mission says, well, I want to perpetuate my ministry, I want to perpetuate it on into in you know on into the future, far into the future, with never a goal of indigenization. You need to kind of stop and evaluate. If it's not moving toward indigenization in whatever fashion, education, discipling, uh, evangelism, whatever it may be, then you need to kind of back up and say, why aren't they? And then why shouldn't they? And then if they are not really, well, that's not what I do, find those that do. Still need that. Yes, I hear you. Um, if we want to be a little more uh, concrete, uh, could they contact B-World? Oh, certainly, yeah. B-World, Biblical Education by extension, B-World, they'd be, we'd be happy to share with them. Uh, other groups that do it in different places, there may be places that you're interested in that we're not there yet, but we know others that are. Good. What's the website for uh, B-World? It's uh, bworld.org. Oh, okay. B-E-E.org. No, B-E-E-World. Oh, forget the world. B- yeah, <laughs> B- B-E-E-world.org. Yes, thank and, you. And with that, we'll, well, thank you very much, and let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the truth that your word is being spread and disciples are being made around the world through the native persons who live in those areas and that they are um, uh, doing a good job. We pray you'd bless them, Lord, encourage them, and may you raise up more uh, indigenous missionaries that your wonderful uh, message of the Lord Jesus Christ would be spread more quickly. And we pray this in his wonderful name. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to the Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located at 62 Collins Avenue. Feel free to join us at these times. You can also write us at eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior. Savior.